0: Uh, this morning we're kicking off a brand new series called Good. Uh, and if you uh, don't know how we teach here, we teach through the Bible. We teach out of the Bible, we teach through books of the Bible. Um, and like in January, we taught the life of David, so we taught out of first and second Samuel. Good is a series that we're teaching for four weeks through the book of Titus. Uh, and so we'll spend the next four weeks in this book. We call it books, but they're actually letters. Uh, most of the New Testament are letters that uh, really the Apostle Paul wrote to whether it's churches or different people uh, and just giving instructions about what to do. And Titus is actually um, a book or a letter called a pastoral epistle. How many of you have heard the word epistle before? It's a fun word to say, epistle, uh, but but epistle just means letter, and so this, there's three books or letters in the New Testament that are called pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy. They're two letters to Timothy and then Titus, and what they are is they're letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protégés and right-hand guys that were leading churches to give them instructions and in how to pastor those churches. That's why it's called pastoral letters or pastoral epistles, and so we're going to spend the next four weeks in this book of Titus, and here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to read the book of Titus with us. And so it's really easy. Um, if you've never opened the Bible, um, one, your Bible app makes it super easy. You can download that. We just talked about apps. But if you like paper, uh, you can just go to the back and then just start flipping to a section that has T's in it. And so you'll see First and Second Thessalonians, then First and Second Timothy, and then you'll see... Titus right there. And so you just get to the T section and that's where Titus is. Read it. It's a short letter. It's three chapters long. You can read it in one sitting. You can take time and just get little bite-sized chunks out of it. I'd encourage you Uh, If you haven't already, there's this resource called The Bible Project, thebibleproject.org, and go watch the video they did on Titus. Really engaging uh, videos they make that give you the overall landscape and so you can really understand the book of Titus. If you're in a missional community, what we call our small groups or life groups or midweek groups that are growing together to become more like Jesus, I'd ask you, would you take time to actually wrestle with this, talk about this in your communities, in your groups together. Um, And then uh, the last thing I would just invite you to do is, would you hold up your notes for me, just real quick? Every week I produce notes for you. It's a labor of love. Um, But the reason I want you to hold up your notes is this week especially, I think these notes are notes to keep. And what I'm going to do this week is give you the entire overview of Titus so that when you walk out of this room, this moment, you're able to think through an entire book of the Bible. For some, you've never even read the Bible, and you're going to walk out knowing what an entire book of the Bible is. And you can think through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 real clearly. And this will be a resource, and it'll be a guide for where we're going in the following three weeks, okay? Okay. Uh, the reason I, I, well, all right, let's start there. Um, so my neighbor, or at least my former neighbor, uh, showed up to my house uh, a couple weeks ago. And we, ha- in our neighborhood, our block, we're pretty tight and hang out a lot together. And our neighbor next door, his name, uh, we'll call him Todd, because that's his name, uh, <laughs> But Todd showed up out of the blue, and he moved like three or four years ago, uh, and he like sold his house, bought an RV, and he was just going to go explore um, America. And he, you know, sold his house, got the RV, and we hadn't seen him since for like three or four years. And then all of a sudden, my kids show up, and they're like, hey, Dad, Todd's in the front yard. I'm like, oh, Okay. You know, it's kind of out of the blue, didn't know what's going on, so we show up and uh, talking to him, we sit on the stoop, and I ask him, like, okay, well, it's been, like, three, four years. What have you been up to? He's like, wow, your kids are getting big. I know, it's crazy. I got a teenager now. It's wild. Um, And then he begins to share with me his adventures and his excursions, all this sort of thing. Well, I got the RV. I started traveling. I've been trying to spend two or three months, you know, in each state. And and then I was like, I'm going to travel the world. So I went to Spain, and then I went through Europe and did all these different things. And then my other neighbor came across the street, And Todd's just like kind of sharing, you know, his his reality. And he's like, well, and then I took the RV to Sturges and I was like, I'm like, do you even have a motorcycle? Yeah, I have a motorcycle, but it's a dirt bike. I'm like, well, that doesn't really kind of fit the the theme of Sturge is but then he begins to share this with us and uh, he's like yeah I was there and I just saw these really pretty girls and I said hey do you want to do you want to model and they're like sure and so then they get on these motorcycles and bikinis and I'm taking pictures and I have like a thousand people behind me and I'm taking pictures and he's telling this big story and then he's getting on his phone showing us pictures I'm like "Ah, oh, thanks very much um uh, And then my neighbor looks at me, He knows what I do, uh, and he says this, boy, did we choose the wrong profession. I'm like, oh, because the question that we're wrestling with, that you wrestle with is which life is actually the good life? Like which version of life is really the good life? What's fascinating about Todd's journey is four years prior, his version of the good life sounded different. His version of The Good Life, he was an entrepreneur, very gifted, uh, in, audio engineer, and has invented quite a bit of things. And so he's like, I'm going to start. His version of The Good Life was to uh, start and launch a billion-dollar company. And then it didn't go quite so well. And so he changed his version of The Good Life from leading you know, a billion-dollar company that impacts and shapes the world to... Working as few days as possible to play as much as possible. In fact, you know, the way he was sharing, is like, Yeah, I only work 10 days a year because my skill set, I can work 10 days right here and then I travel the rest of the time. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And there's something in that conversation that made me sad. Because in all of that, I looked at, man, like, the sense of, like, home, the sense of place, the sense of identity, the sense of purpose was just lost. And we wrestle with this, though, but, you know, which life is actually the good life? And we're all on a pursuit of that, aren't we? For some, it's the American dream. Like, the, you own a home. Like, how do you own a home in this Bay Area? I'm really asking, would someone tell me how <laughs> to own a home. is crazy around here, right? But all of a sudden, that becomes the American dream, like home ownership or getting married. For some, your dream is like the good life is one day or getting married or one day having kids. Like the American dream is the perfect home with the family uh, with the dog because cats are not a part of the American dream. They are not. I am sorry, cat people, but that's not a part of anybody's dream, more nightmares than dreams. Uh, but the American dream, right, is is this perfect life. And for many, we're on this pursuit of an American dream. For others, you're on the pursuit of the millennial dream. It's different than the American dream. And many, you are on the pursuit of the millennial dream. The millennial dream, hey, man, if you can like not walk just right in front, right there, back and forth, that's okay. All right, cool. <laughs> Uh, but the, uh, the millennial dream has this whole uh, concept of this, of like, I want a job that matters. I don't want just any job. I want to be a part of something that has purpose and meaning that's making a difference. And yet at the same time, I want to go on lots of adventures, Lots of, you know, I want to travel. I want to have the freedom to go anywhere and everywhere and do whatever I want, whenever I want. Like, that's the millennial dream. For many of you, you're looking around and going, okay, how do I, you know, get this job that's awesome, but yet have the freedom to travel? Really, what I really want, my my dream is the flexible lifestyle. Don't don't pin me in that whole consistency. That whole marriage thing. Yikes! I want to be flexible. I want to have my options at Netflix. I have my options, you know. Everywhere else I go, I'm like, why should I be pinned down? But you're in that pursuit, and we wrestle with this: only which life is actually the good life? And then we wrestle with a deeper question: Who is really a good person? You know, it's interesting, I was reading this uh, journal article on psychology today, and it was a psychologist that was writing it, and she was talking about being in New Orleans and having all these, you know, tarot card readers out there. And so they went to the, they had one say, hey, well, I'll give you a two-for-one cheapest on the block. They said, sure. And they said, well, what do you want to know? I found so fascinating her just internal instinctive response, and she thought, said it was a pretty funny question to ask in that moment. But her question she asked was, am I a good person? Like we kind of wonder that, right? Am I really a good person or what makes a good person? And if we want to get married, we obviously want to get married to a good person or have friends that are good people or if we have kids, we want our kids to be Good people, but what makes a good person in society? We talk about good people kind of like they're kind, you know? It's our culture is kindness, but but then can I be a good person and be kind but also lie or cheat? Am I a good person if I'm trustworthy and true, but I'm a jerk? Like what makes a good person? Who who really is good? And so we go from which is a good life to who is a good person, to then this question: what is actually good for human beings? This question is at the center of our society at the moment. Uh, if you look at food trends, what is actually good for human beings is ironic. Um, in the 90s, we we thought that fat was not good for human beings, and so everything was the low-fat diet, right? Okay, I'm talking to people who weren't even alive in the 90s right now. I'm looking at your faces like, what is that all about? So there's this trend, by the way, low-fat diet. I know for all you that are on the like ketosis diet or whatever, the high fat, like margarine was in and butter was out. Now butter's in and margarine's out. Like we don't even know health-wise what's good for humanity. And by the way, this is just my own personal thought. Um, I don't have science to back it up, but kale rhymes with hell. And so I, I think, I think it might not be good for humanity. Now. Now, here's the thing, and here's the reason why this question is at the center of our conversation. What is actually good for human beings? Because we're wrestling with this in the context of artificial intelligence right now. What is actually good for human beings? We're wrestling with this in the context of augmented reality. What is actually good for human beings? We're wrestling with this in, in the education centers when it comes to gene editing. What is actually good? For human beings. And every philosophy, every single religion answers or tries to answer these questions. These questions, whether you're aware of it or not, are driving your life. They're the undercurrent of your passions, the undercurrent of what you're going uh, and doing. And yet, Jesus offers a unique answer in comparison to every other philosophy every other religion, when it comes to what is actually the good life, who is really a good person and what is good for human beings? And he says it this way. He says it as he sets up uh, you know his conversation, he says this that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And we've all experienced that when it comes to good, right? We've experienced that there's been moments when that person, we thought they were a good person, but they ended up not being a good person and they killed that job. Maybe it was a business partner. Maybe it was a friendship. Maybe it was a dating relationship. We've, we've experienced that in a decision where you thought, man, I'm gonna go here and this is actually good for me or, or I'm gonna take this job and I think this is really gonna be good. And it ends up killing or ends up stealing your joy. It ends up taking from life. We've all had that experience in different ways. But then what he says, Next is so revolutionary. No other philosophy, no other world religion claims anything like this. Period. This is one of the things that sets Christianity completely apart from every other religion and philosophy. He says this But I have come, my purpose, the reason I'm here. I have come so that you may have life and have it. The fool. Now here's what he's saying. Don't miss this. The good life is not found in a what. The good life and what's actually good for human beings isn't found in a philosophy, isn't even found in a path to follow. The good life is found in a who. He says, he would say it in another way, this way: I am the way. I am the truth. I define reality, what's good for human beings. And I am the, anybody help me out? Life. Like I showed up on the planet and I am life. I am what's good. It's not some idea, but a person. Now, this is powerful. Because what he's saying is, I have come to give you life to the full, which is me. Now, some of you know the old version of this where it says, I've come to give you abundant life. It's life that is like overflowing. Life that overflows with meaning. Life that overflows with purpose. Life that overflows with peace and joy and delight. Man, my goodness! I'm so sad that in Christianity we we try to repress like and think it's fuddy-duddy. Like it's like the life that's full of delight because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Like like when you're in the good life, it's just like this. Whoa! He says, "I've come to create that." And then he, if he, if that's all he said, he would be a crazy man because because no one can claim that unless he backed it up. And last week we celebrated the resurrection. That Christ rose again from the dead, declaring that all that he said was indeed true, that the author of life, death, could not hold them. And so, how do we actually experience this good life? What's good for human beings? So, let me give you a little bit of history post the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. And then he appears to over 500 eyewitnesses uh, over a course of about 40 days. And, And as he's going about the time, he's teaching them and talking to them about the kingdom and about what their next step to do is to then begin to spread this good news about this good life found in him. That's the good news, that God has come to bring good life that is found in Jesus, in him alone. And so then for 40 days, he teaches them and and then commissions them on the final day. And he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And this is identification into new life in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, your purpose on this planet is then to help everyone experience the good life that you have now experienced through me. Like, go and do that. And then he ascends up into heaven. 49 days after the um, resurrection, something happens called Pentecost. Now, Jesus says to them, hey, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until I give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's going to empower you to do what I've called you to do. And so, forty-nine days after, nine days after he ascended into heaven, uh, the the Spirit of God comes on to the disciples, and there, there's about 120 of them in a room, and they've been praying together. And God shows up in that moment, and, and it says that it's as if like tongues of fire kind of settled on them, and they just go down into uh, the streets and begin to talk to people. Now, Pentecost is another Jewish festival; and it has all this idea of celebrating the harvest, and many people who came for Passover from all over the world would stay for Pentecost because, man, you made a long journey. You might as well make the most of it. So Jerusalem's still filled with lots of people from all around the world. And so he, they, the disciples go down, and it's early in the morning, and they just begin to share this good news about a good life found in Jesus. And then the people are going, um, I think they're drunk. Uh, this is weird. And part of the reason why they thought they were drunk is what the text says is everyone heard them speaking in their own language. And there's people from all over the world that were, that were in there that were Jews who were, you know, in Jerusalem to celebrate. And yet they were from different parts of the kingdom and they heard them in their native tongue. One of the lines that I love is in Acts 2.11 is where it says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. I love that, by the way, when we're talking about awakening. This is a little bit of a side. Like my dream is that this generation hears the wonders of God declared in their own tongue. Like they get to hear how great and how good and how amazing God is, and it's, we all, every generation, has kind of a language, you know. And music is so much a part of the language. That's why music's such an important part for us here. Well, Peter gets up in that moment, and he he preaches his first message. And it's, it's amazing. As preachers, you always hope for something like this to happen. He gets up and he says, we're not drunk. <laughs> Let me explain what's going on. And he tells the gospel, the good news about this good life found in Jesus. And 3,000 people give their life to Christ in that moment. Boom. And the church is born. And what is amazing is it's not just born, but because there were so many people from different areas, the church is now on the move. And as people went back home, the church, these new followers of Jesus, are going back home. One of those groups was a group called the Cretans. There are people from Crete. Titus was called by Paul to pastor this group of Cretans. Now, let me tell you a little about. About Crete. Crete is this island right off, um, God bless you. Crete is this island right off the uh, Greece coast. It's a large island, and they were notorious. Notorious for wild living. They, they had a reputation of being liars, cheats, and scoundrels. Uh, many on that island were paid mercenaries. Like, that was their role. Uh, and yet, Crete was strategic because it had all these great harbors and was a great place, you know, for trade. And so we had these Jewish believers who found faith in Christ that were from Crete. They go back to Crete, and yet the church is kind of in a mess, They had no one teaching them about how to live out this new life, this good life. And part of the problem is they really got what I'd say kind of half of the gospel. And I think this is something that happens here in the church today. We get the first half of the gospel and we get the first half pretty good. God loves you. It's so true. And God came to save you and that you might have eternal life. The second half of the gospel or the whole gospel is that God actually has good plans for you. Like it's not just life now, like after you die, it is life now. Like the eternal kind of life doesn't start one day, it starts today. When you put your faith in Christ, there is a good life, or the way the Greek word here is kalos, for good, it means beautiful. There's a beautiful way of life that should just be permeated out. And that's the gospel of that we embrace the good news that God loves us, and then we experience this new life and live out a good life. Well, the church in Crete was in a mess, And Paul takes Titus and says, Hey, I'm going to leave you here. And Titus was one of Paul's right hand guys. Um, Anytime there was a problem in the church, uh, he would send Titus. Titus was one of the early Greek believers. He wasn't Jewish at all. And he would, you know, if Ephesus had a problem, he sent Titus to work with the church in Ephesus. And Corinthians and Corinth, he sent Titus with some really important stuff. Well, Crete is needing some work. It's a church that's really in a mess. And so he sends Titus and writes this letter to help Titus, uh, helped this group become uh, a beautiful community. Uh, The gospel was not attractive because of their lives. And so he's talking to them about how to be this new community. And here's what he writes. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put into order what was left unfinished. Like, we got half of it. We got half of the gospel. We have unfinished business, and you're going to finish the business. And, And the problem with the church in Crete was simply this. They had three major problems. The first was hypocrisy. They said one thing and did another. Their beliefs did not match their behavior. Does that sound familiar? Church in America looks a whole lot like that, doesn't it? Say one thing, do another. We have all these beliefs, but our behaviors don't match them. And, and, and this hypocrisy is such a turnoff to a watching world. The second thing they had was a move from hypocrisy to syncretism. And syncretism is where you take a part of this belief and a part of that belief and you put them together. So they began to take actually about three beliefs. They put their faith in Christ and then some of their Jewish beliefs about working uh, in, and then to earn God's favor. And then they even merged some of their Greek beliefs. And the island of Crete, uh, they claimed that the, they were the home for the birthplace of Zeus. And it was, Zeus was, uh, you know, worshipped. And so they began to put all three together. And combine and merge and make something that was completely different than what Jesus intended. And we do this in our day all the time. There's so much of God's word that we, we kind of pick and choose. And I like this part and I don't like that part. And so I'm going to obey this. I'm not going to obey that. We, we, we merge things with what is, you know, oftentimes kind of new agey. And well, you know, it's my truth. No. There's true and untrue. That's just how it works. Or we kind of go, okay, politically correct. It defines what's right and what's wrong and what I'll lean into. And we pick And choose. So this church, their hypocrisy, their behaviors, undermining the message of God. A watching world's looking at the way they're living and saying, "What you say and how you live does not line up." And then they're taking multiple leaves and starting to put them together. And they, and now then they move into this divisiveness, where where the church is quarreling and backbiting and arguing over everything. I think if Paul was going to write a letter to the church in America, it might look a little bit like the Book of Titus. I would argue that it's not that the gospel is offensive. The reason so many people feel like don't want anything to do with God. I would argue that it has more to do with us in the church. When when we got to own, and maybe you showed up and, man, you've been burned by church. You've been burned by religion. You've been burned by people who claim the name of Jesus but look nothing like him. And I say, I'm sorry. In the church, we have a group in the West in America where it's just hypocritical. Where we pick and choose what we believe. And then if you look at the church and you go like, man, if that's what church is about, all they do is argue with one another. All they do is yell at one another. Look at some blog posts. And all they do is... The major theme for the book of Titus is this. God's grace leads to good living. God's grace God's grace, God's grace. Like like the problems in this church are solved by God's grace. And when you rightly understand God's grace in your life, then it moves you to this life that is beautiful, this life that is just, just the watching world looks and goes, wow. And notice, let's make sure we don't get the cart before the horse. We don't do good works to be loved by God. We don't do good works to earn God's favor. We don't do good works to somehow be blessed and somehow get accepted by God. You are accepted by God. You are loved by God. You are blessed. And as a result, out of that, you do good works. Yeah, that was a really good spot for like... A big amen there. Yeah, come on. Because here's the deal. When you understand that the undeserved favor of God rests on you, his delight and his affection is towards you, when you realize that his love never varies no matter what you do, when you get that deep in your heart and you're just like, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? Like, God loves me. God loves me. Man grace leads to good living. How can I not just share that love? How can I not just express that love? How can I not just want to help you the way God has helped me? And so he gives Titus this assignment to restore the church to be this community living the abundant life, living the good life where the gospel might once more be attractive to a watching world. And so, he answers this, he addresses these problems in the church. Chapter 1, he answers the question, how do you be a good church? Like, how do you have a good church? Confronting the issue of hypocrisy in the church. Titus, your first assignment is to restore the church. Uh, the introduction of Paul is the second longest introduction of all his letters, the first being the theological tome of Romans. This one is in such a put here because Titus needs the apostolic authority and leadership of Paul. And so we have this long introduction setting up Titus to really speak into a church that needs to hear God's word. But how do you confront hypocrisy? How do you be a good church? He's going to say this, appoint godly leaders, and then he gives us qualifications for elders. We'll talk about next week why I call them, why we call them leadership council, not elders. Elders are overseers or the leaders of the church. They're to be blameless, faithful. He gives their people of character, integrity, self-discipline, have sound doctrine. And so you appoint godly leaders, and then you address divisive one. You address false teachers. You address those that are causing havoc, those that are, that are leading others astray. You remove false teachers. You, you, you address people, and here's how he says in Titus uh, 6, uh, I think, one fifteen. He says, they claim to know God, but their actions deny him. They claim to be spiritual, but their lives don't line up with God's word. And the reason here is as the leaders go, so goes the church. As the leaders go, so goes the church. The way I say it all the time is speed of the leader, speed of the team. When we started Awakening Church, I had this prayer. I said, God, and you might be offended by this prayer. That's okay. God, would you bring the right people and guard us from the wrong people? Like, is there wrong people? Yes. That critical, backbiting, bitter root-spirited person? That person that is always talking about people behind their backs, always complaining, that is creating division? It's amazing. It only takes one, and it works its way through, and all of a sudden, you have a culture of people. God, would you bring the right people to awakening? People, women and men who love you, women and men who have a passion for your name, women and men who say, we're not perfect, but we're, we we want to shine brightly for you. And would you guard us from the wrong people? Man, I can tell you, when I look around at the leadership of this church, when I look around at the people God's brought, I'm blown away. I mean, I'm just amazed by the people God has brought here and who he's guarded us from. And We've had to address some people over the years, and we'll talk about that. And the reason is, as the leaders go, if we want to be a beautiful church, if we want to be a community that, that has incredible impact, it begins with the leaders. As the leaders go, so go the church. So here's what this means. Because many of you in this room serve in some capacity. You're part of the leadership. You're part of creating the culture of what's happening here. Our church will never be more passionate about those who are far from God than we are who are leaders. Our our church will never be more persistent in prayer and dependent upon God than we are as leaders. We have to stop thinking that the problem is out here and begin to examine our own heart. You want to see revival, pray for one in your heart. Come on now. We want to pray for a revival out there and see God do something. It starts with you. It starts with the fire in here. and Think about multiple fires kindled all in your soul, and you go out, and God does an incredible thing. But it starts with us. It doesn't start with complaining about what's happening out there. As the leaders go, so goes the church. If we want to be a beautiful church, he says it begins with godly leaders, and you address divisive People. Then he goes on to our relationships, and he says, how do you have great relationships? How do you have good relationships? And here Titus is confronting the issue of syncretism, the, the issue of kind of picking and choosing what you believe. And he calls and commands Titus to teach sound doctrine. Why? Because relationships are hard. Relationships are messy. The call of the New Testament is to sacrifice your life for the sake of others, The call of Jesus, a beautiful life, is to walk humbly, to consider others better than yourself, to love the unlovely, to love those who persecute you, to pray for them. That's doctrine, friends. That's God's word. That's who we're to be. The reason he dresses our relationships in syncretism is because it plays out in all of our relationships. Because selfishness, pride, arrogance plays out in all of our relationships. And so he says, teach them sound doctrine in regards to your character. Teach them sound doctrine. And then he'll address older men and older women and younger women and younger men. Because at each stage, there's different things we need. There's different issues we face. As a college student, you're facing certain things that a married person is facing that's different as opposed to an empty nester. And he says this. He says, teach them sound doctrine in regards to your character, then in regards to your work. In fact, he would say this uh, at at Titus 2.10, that our work, uh, that we should work in a way that makes uh, the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I love that. Like the way we work. Did you know that there's a doctrine for how we should work as followers of Jesus? Should make the gospel attractive. Paul would say this elsewhere. He said, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that how we work, whether the boss is worthy of following or not, whether the company is a good company or not, whether it's your dream job or not, how we work reveals the goodness of God and whether the gospel has really changed or shaped us. As Christians, we should never do shoddy work because we work unto the Lord. We go, okay, this job, I'm gonna dig this ditch. If that's my job today, I'm digging this ditch for the glory of God. It's gonna be the best ditch in San Jose. I'm gonna do it with a good attitude. Excellence honors God and inspires people. When people see how we work, they should go, wow. They should go, wow. Man, how did you respond to her? She was a total jerk to you in that meeting. It's Jesus, man. As they begin to complain and backbite and talk in the office about so and so and this, I can't believe the boss. You just go, hey guys, I, I don't feel good with this. It's amazing. It's amazing how you never talk bad about anyone. You never cut them down. That's Jesus. Teaches sound doctrine in regards to your character and regards to your work, and then he gives us a theology of doing good. It is the theme of the book: God's grace leads to good living. And the reason is how we live reveals the goodness of the gospel. How we live reveals the goodness of the gospel. Said another way, Jesus would say it this way: How we love reveals the goodness of the gospel. John 13. 34, 35, Jesus would say on the night before he's, night he's betrayed, day before he goes to the cross. A new command I give you that you, anyone? Love. Did you know love is a doctrine for Christians? You probably never have thought of that. A new command I give you that you love one another. In the same way I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Sacrificially, humbly, giving of himself. And then he says this so that the whole world would know you are my disciples. Like the church on display in our relationships, like they should be able to look at us and go, I don't believe what you believe. That's weird. This dead man came to life and you're worshiping him, but I cannot deny how you live. There's something so attractive about that. There's something so winsome. The way you love them, the way you go the extra mile, the way you're present with them, the way you listen, the, the way you're just attentive and care, the way you love, I can't deny it because how we live, how we love, reveals the goodness of the gospel to a watching world. So he moves from a good church good relationships, and chapter 3 closes to what does good living actually look like, to restore this abundant life, this beautiful life, and it's confronting division. Assignment number three for Titus, to restore abundant living, and here's what he says, remind God's people to honor everyone. If you wouldn't mind, humor me, circle the word everyone, everyone. Remind God's people to honor everyone. He'd say it this way, be subject to authorities. And I guarantee you the authorities were not great to be subjected to. Slander no one. Be gentle towards everyone. It's like remind God's people to honor In your speech, in your posture, in your online, like it's just honoring them. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is going to dishonor, that's going to cut down. Like live a life that goes, man, I don't agree, but I'll still honor you. Well, how do we do this? He says, remember God's great grace in your life. How do you honor everyone? It gets back to his grace. It gets back to his grace. When you realize God's undeserved favor, when you don't let that fire die, you never feel like you've arrived. There's no place for pride. You realize that at the foot of the cross is level ground, and no one's above another person, and we're just all prodigals coming home to our Father. And we just go, "Hello, uh, grace of God. I'm just standing here. I'm a trophy of His grace. I don't even know what that means, but that's what I am. I'm a trophy of His grace. Right, and I'm just inviting you. I'm going to remind myself daily. I'm going to remember God's great grace. He saved me. He saved me. His love reached down to me, and so as a result, then I'll stay away from foolish arguments. That's going to be fun to talk about, by the way. Week four, uh, we're going to talk specifically about what should I say, online and not. Where should I speak up, and where should I stay silent? tough waters, by the way, as followers of Jesus, to know when to speak up and when to be silent. And how do we stay away from foolish arguments? How do we not go down into the valley of distractions and argue with other Christians when there's a world that desperately needs the grace of God? And then he says this, devote yourself to doing what's good. Devote yourself to doing what's good. Devote yourself. Honor, remind God's people to honor everyone. Remember his grace. Stay away from arguments and devote yourself to doing what's good. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. This begins with just God's grace in our life. That that your salvation is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then he says this. He says this about you. He says, you are God's workmanship, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which Christ prepared in advance for you to do. Did you know that God today prepared a good work for you to do? I don't think you'd realize that. Maybe you walked in, you didn't realize this was just a normal day, and you woke up, and now you know that God actually had a plan and has prepared a good work for you to do. You have good work to do, and every single day, God's prepared good work for you to do, to live into, to bring out this beautiful life that represents the gospel. He's got good, good work for you to do. Would you begin to devote yourself to living the good life? to leaning in to the good work he's prepared for you. Maybe pray a prayer like this. God, would you help me see the good work you've prepared for me? God, would you help me to see today the good work you've prepared for me? God, would you help me to see? I just want to notice it. I want to see it. I, I just want to pay attention to it because I, I, I don't know what it is. It might be a conversation. It might be helping someone that's just along your path. And here's the reason why. God transforms communities through the good work of his people. God transforms neighborhoods, workplaces, he transforms schools and universities and cities and nations through the good work of his people, through the beautiful lives we live out. Not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but because we have been blessed, we then live this out. Listen, the call of the gospel and to see change affected in our world, we don't need to stand outside and protest and hold up signs. We don't need to tell people you're going to hell in a handbasket, whatever that means. We don't need to reject culture and just go, ah, stay away from me. He says, God transforms communities through the good work of his people. Don't believe me? Listen to the way Jesus said it. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives life to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your, help me out, you don't believe it yet, that they may see your what? It's the exact same words in Titus that are repeated over and over. Your beautiful work, your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. See, I think there's unfinished business for us, church. I think the call for us is to embrace the fullness of the gospel. The good news that leads to this incredibly beautiful life lived out. Not just life one day and somehow if I'm good, I'm good and I don't care about everyone else. But the good life lived out on display so that a watching world sees and goes, Man, I don't fully get it. I don't understand it. I don't know how you respond that way. I don't understand why you love that way. But I want to know I would encourage you. I'd ask you. I don't encourage. I'm asking. Would you pray this prayer every single day? God, would you help me see the good you've prepared for me? Like, would you just pray that prayer and then see it and then just with the heart of going, God, if you show me, I'll do it. I want to lean into that. God, would you just help me see the good? You've prepared it. You've gone ahead of me. You know my day before I ever know what's going to happen in my day. And you've prepared strategic moments in my day for me to lean into this good living that expresses the goodness of the gospel. God, would you help me see the good you've prepared for me? I'm going to invite our team who's going to do baptisms in just a moment to come forward, but I'm going to pray for you. I'm just going to pray that prayer for you. And then we're going to do baptisms, and we're going to celebrate big about the new life that God's doing. But may we be a beautiful church, a city set on a hill shining for the gospel, that a watching world goes, I don't fully get it, but man, I can't deny how you live. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the women and men in this room. Thank you for your word that is so powerful in our lives to transform and change us. God, I pray for courageous souls in this moment. Those that have been wrestling with uh, you and wrestling with like fully trusting their lives to you, that in this moment they say, God, I'm all yours. I do believe that today, You are the good life. You are what's good for humanity. And there's only one that's truly good, and that's you. And so I'm running to you. You have all of me. And God, I pray, I pray that we would be a church that that runs to you, that we would have your eyes for a hurting world around us, that you would give us your vision of what you're doing around us, that you would break our heart for the things that break your heart that you would make us a community that extends your beautiful, incredible news and love. God, would you help us to see the good that you've prepared for us? In Jesus' name.